Thanks for listening to the teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church in Mullica Hill, New Jersey. We trust today's message will challenge you and move you closer to Christ. Well, I love the fact that Acts doesn't stop in Acts 20 or 21. Uh, last week, we talked about the fact that Paul said, listen, I want to finish strong. And that's really important. But we have seven other chapters. You ready for this? Of his suffering and persecution. <laughs> okay. So what's coming in the next several chapters is the fact that he not only said he wanted to finish strong, but then we get this great, incredible example of how you should live when you say you want to do that. We all have good intentions. And so it's one thing to say, that's how I want to finish. It's another thing to spend whatever time you have left in that very productive way. Well, I know you just got seated, but I'm going to have you stand one more time for the reading of the word and our worship this morning. And I'll be reading from Acts chapter 22, verse 6. I'll pick up the reading there. Acts 22, starting at verse 6. Now, Paul's preaching here, and this is what he says. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth, for you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. This is God's word. You may be seated. I came up on a wonderful statement this past week that goes kind of like this, and it sets up the context for what we're about to see. If you're in God's story, what you do has eternal consequences. Now, for everybody, there's eternal consequences, all right? But when a person places their faith in Christ, there are eternal consequences for all of their actions. We tend not to think that. I get it. We're busy. We got a lot going on. We have things we got to think about this afternoon. And somehow we forget that from here on out, everything that we do has an eternal impact. And just let me put that in context. Um, maybe you're thinking of, of the end of your life or the next five years of your life or the next 10 years of your life. Let's just stop and let me give you some numbers. Can you imagine what might be happening for you, 100 years from now, 1,000 years from now, 10,000 years from now, 10 million years from now, 10 billion years from now. You say, Phil, my mind doesn't work like that. I know there are eternal consequences because we are a part of God's story when we placed our faith in Jesus. We are a part of that story. Every person we talk to has eternal consequences. Every interaction we have 
has eternal consequences. And that's what you learn from Paul in this particular passage. I'm gonna flip back a little bit into Acts 21 to kind of set this up. But if you're gonna make an eternal impact, then there's just two simple things according to this text that you gotta do. Number one, start with proper expectations. Number two, learn to share your Jesus story, okay? Uh, initially, I had that as learn to share your story. We all have a story, but particularly, how do we learn to share our Jesus story? Now, it's not a secret that one of the greatest conflicts in almost all relationships, and clearly one of the greatest conflicts in your, in your marriage, if you're married, is, is that there are unmet expectations. And often those expectations are unspoken. And so we go in thinking we're going to get, see one thing, one thing's going to happen, and, and that expectation isn't met, and therefore there's a conflict. When we are trying to serve God, the same thing can happen. We set out saying, okay, I'm, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm, I'm going to become a Jesus follower. I'm going to serve God. And then bad things happen, and it doesn't really mesh up with what we expected. Okay. So there's a couple things you need to understand about this story. Okay. Now, remember, Paul was, we just came through this idea where he was traveling back from his third missionary journey and everybody was saying, Paul, don't go back to Jerusalem. Don't go back to Jerusalem. Bad things are going to happen if you get back to Jerusalem. Even prophecies were spoken over him saying, listen, you're going to be in prison. These bad things are going to happen to you. And Paul says, listen, God wants me to go back. The spirit of God laid on me to go back. So I need to go. So Paul automatically has the right kind of expectations. In fact, from the moment of his conversion, he had the right kind of expectations. Because remember, um, Ananias came to him and gave him this message. Here's a word from the Lord. Welcome to the family of God. You're called to suffer. Okay. Now, just imagine momentarily, you're sharing Christ with a person across the table at a coffee shop someplace, and they say, I want to believe in Jesus. And you say, let's pray right now to accept Jesus. And they bow their head, and they pray, and they say, I trust Christ. They repent from their sin, and they're at the table. They say, amen, and you look up and say, you're going to suffer. You say, that's not the message I want to give them, right? But that's exactly the expectation that Paul had coming in. And, and just, uh, just let me get off track for just a minute here, okay? I told you I was going to go off track. We're Westerners. We live in a culture that even as much as 100 years ago um, had some degree of suffering just in the everyday aspects of life. Google sometimes when air conditioning was developed, okay? Before you complain that your air conditioner isn't quite providing enough coolness. Consider the fact that, that your home is warm tonight when just a few years ago it wasn't like that for people. So Americans are kind of caught up in, I want everything to be secure, I want everything to be safe, and I want to be comfortable. And into that comes this message that you have to suffer, that you have to face difficulty. Well, everybody around you in your neighborhood is thinking that they don't have to. The Christian is called too. So let me just show you a few things that are going to happen. Paul comes back to Jerusalem. He meets with the church leaders. Now, that's different. Bear in mind in the temple, okay? The Christians are the ones who are gathering. At this stage, there's several thousand probably that have come to faith in Christ. So they're still kind of Jewish, but they're following Jesus, and, uh, but there's still this huge Jewish population that has wants nothing to do with following Jesus. And so the church there in Jerusalem with James says, listen, Paul, we're glad you're here. Everything's good. Um, thanks for the offerings. We'll make sure those get distributed. This is great, but we are really concerned that you're going to get in trouble while you're here. 
So James says, listen, here's what I want you to do. I want you to um, participate with these four guys who are going to go down and make a Nazarite vow down at the temple tomorrow. So when you go in, we'll kind of have you bodyguarded with four other guys. And, and when you go in, th- things will be okay because they anticipate there's going to be a problem. Okay. So here's what I want you to see. These are the proper expectations. When there's hatred, when there's chaos, when God has sent you. What you find in this text is when there's hatred, expect lies to be told, okay? When there's hatred, expect lies to be told. So here's what happens. Paul goes down, everything's good, but within a few days, the Jews from Asia that are upset at Paul, they come into town, and here's what we find out, verse 27, Acts 21. The Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere. Now stop right there that cannot possibly be accurate, okay? He can't teach everyone everywhere, okay? It's a lie. Against the people, the law in this place, wait a minute. Against the Jewish people, against the law, that is their Old Old Testament that we have today, and this place, the temple, he's against all of it, okay? That also is a lie. Now, this is really important because when we are lied about, our tendency is to try to defend that lie. Like, no, that's not true. Just give me a second. I'll explain it. It it didn't really happen like that. That's not what Paul's going to do with this. In a moment, you're going to see that Paul takes all of that angst and all of that hatred and only sees it as an opportunity to talk about Jesus. Wow. You see, this is why I said we should expect some difficult things to happen. But that's not the only part. Look at this, verse 29. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city. Now, I just got to go back and rehearse this for you a second. Trophimus was one of the the Greeks that had accompanied Paul on his third missionary journey. Somehow he met Trophimus, who became a believer, but he's not Jewish. And the thing you got to know is you're not allowed to take a Greek, a non-Jewish person, into the temple. So Paul's still going into the Jewish temple. And so they say, listen, he took Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. They saw them together, uh, I don't know, having bagels or something someplace. And, and, and having done that, they all of a sudden assumed he was in the temple too. Verse 30, then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together, and they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut, whoops, and they were seeking to kill him. Wherever there is hatred involved, you can expect lies to be told. But here's the second part. When there's chaos, expect people to be confused. Now, see, this is so helpful because we're not going in with an unmet expectation. We recognize that even Jesus said, listen, there will be those who hate you. Okay, so you can expect people to tell lies. Here's the other thing. When there's chaos, expect people to be confused. And in the midst of this, there's this, it's probably my weird sense of humor, there's this moment that is actually kind of funny, okay? Are you with me? Here is Paul, the Apostle Paul. People recognize him as Paul. Now, what that means, some have said, um, an early church father said he was an older, bald man. He was kind of bent over. Um, That's Paul, okay? So we don't know what he looks like, but that's the image I want you to have because look what happens next. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, okay, so let me, what, let me explain what happens. There's this huge riot happening because everybody's trying to kill Paul, and the Romans were responsible for overseeing the temple. They, the, the priest would do the religious things, but the Romans were supposed to keep peace there. And when you see the word tribune, that's going to be a captain who's over a 1,000 soldiers. So, and you'll find later in Acts 24 that this tribune's name is Lysias. So here's Lysias. He hears that there's a riot 
right outside the gates. He comes running down there, pulls people apart. Here's Paul in the middle of it. He pulls him out, okay? And as he's taking him to the barracks, this is what happens. Um, Paul was about to be brought into the barracks to be, but that's a prison temple there to be protected. And he said to the tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Like Paul starts to speak in the Greek language. Are you not the Egyptian then who recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? Okay, I just want you to picture it. Here's this little man crippled over, okay. Are you not the Egyptian terrorist? Okay, that's exactly what he's saying. And Paul says, no, this is what Paul says. Paul replied, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to these people. Like, here is the guy who's in charge saying, I captured the Egyptian terrorist. Okay. You're not the Egyptian terrorist. Okay. You say, why would he think he was that? Well, because those particular assassins were known as dagger men. That is, they kept daggers and they would, uh, would they create a riot. And when they would create the riot, they'd sneak in to the crowd and they'd start pulling out their daggers and taking out Roman soldiers because remember the Jews didn't like the Romans very much. So this was an Egyptian Jew, this Egyptian terrorist. And that's what, and, 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 the, and Lysias thinks he's captured the Egyptian terrorist, okay? Instead, he's captured the apostle, Paul. Reminded of the fact that, uh, um, this is a silly story, but, but it's worth telling, okay? Um, we had a groundhog under our front porch. You say, what does this have to do? Very little with anything, okay? But I didn't know how to get him out of there, but I had a guy in my small group who said, I can get him out of there for you, and he brought over a trap. And so I put some food in the trap, and nothing happened for like three days. And I was thinking, man, uh, for, for like three weeks, I'm thinking, this groundhog is going to be living under my porch like all winter, because I figured that's where he's going to stay. And so I'm trying to take care of this, and so here's the trap sitting. One day I came out, and I was all excited because I could see in the cage, there was something in the cage, right? I came running over, looked in the cage, and it was our neighbor's cat, right? <laughs> Now, I just imagine that that's a little bit like how Lysias felt. Hey, we got the Egyptian terrorists. We caught him, we caught him, we caught him. There's Paul. Who are you? I'm the Apostle Paul. I write scripture. Okay, okay. That, that's not exactly what they were expecting at all. Okay. And when he had given his permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people, and then there was a great hush. He addressed them in the Hebrew language. This is beautiful. You have gone from a riot to everybody being quiet. Now, I'm not even sure how that happens, aside from the Spirit of God doing that, but that's exactly what happened. He is on the steps with um, Lysias, the Roman soldier standing next to him, probably a, a couple hundred Roman soldiers trying to create peace, and Paul says, can I speak? And that is because Paul doesn't get caught up in the hatred. He doesn't get caught up in the chaos. When God has sent you, expect an opportunity for the gospel. This is the essence of, of your eternal consequence for being a Christian. Everything is an opportunity to talk about Jesus, everything. Except we're so caught up in, they hated me, they said lies about me, like, like they manipulated me, they said things that weren't even true. We make it about us and not about Jesus. And I love this. Notice what Paul says in Acts 21, verse 39. Paul replied, no, the reason I'm speaking Greek is I'm a Jew from Tarsus, a citizen of no obscure city. Look at what he says next. Here it comes. I beg you, permit me to speak to these people. And when he had given him permission. That's awesome. He's not even talking about himself. He's just saying, I got a crowd. Like, Jesus is on my lips. Can I say something? Can I say something? 
So that's how we understand our proper expectations. Because Paul knew that God had sent him, which we all should know as believers, he was only looking for an opportunity for the gospel. And that's exactly what he's gonna do, and that brings us to the second idea. Share your Jesus story. That's right, you don't have to be a preacher to do this. Share your Jesus story. Because what Paul does in Acts 22 with those individuals is he says, okay, I got a chance. They're quieting down, they're quieting down. I'm gonna talk about Jesus, okay? Now, this is great because we're gonna learn some really, really practical things for sharing our Jesus story because sometimes we might say, I don't even feel, I don't know how, I don't know what I'm gonna say. And unfortunately, sometimes we think a little bit too technically about it. Like, um, I'd share the gospel with the people next to me, but I'm afraid I'm gonna get it wrong. Or, or what if they ask a question I don't have an answer for? Or, you know, I, I, I can't find something in my Bible. We have all these things going on, and we think if only we get the thing kind of semi-memorized, we'll be able to do it. That's not Paul's approach. So let me give you a few reminders as you share your Jesus story from the Apostle Paul. Use understandable words. Don't complicate the gospel message. Use understandable words. Don't complicate the gospel message. Use understandable words. Don't complicate the gospel message. Notice what we read in Acts chapter 21. And when there was a great hush, there he is in the steps, okay? Roman soldier standing next to him. He addressed them in the Hebrew language. Now, this is great. Paul went from, he went from Greek, the Greek language, talking to Tribune. Now he's talking in Hebrew to the people because that's the language they speak, right? Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. This is great. Now, you don't have to learn Greek and Hebrew. That's not the purpose of this point, okay? The purpose of this point is you better learn how to talk to the people you're talking to. And Christians, let's just say it, brothers and sisters, sometimes we have these buzzwords that make it pretty complicated for someone who doesn't know our buzzwords to even understand us. I love the way that John Milton Gregory said it in one of my favorite books of all time entitled The Seven Laws of Teaching. John Milton Gregory was uh, for years served as the president of the, um, Illinois, an Illinois university, public university. But he wrote this wonderful little book, Seven Laws of Teaching. You can get this on the internet too, but just go out and download it. You can get this on the internet. He wrote this little law book, Seven Laws of Teaching, because he was also, as the president of university, teaching children in a Sunday school class at his church. And the third principle goes like this. The language used as a medium between the teacher and the learner must be common to both. In order for the person to understand what you're saying about the gospel, you've got to find ways to kind of get it in their language. Now, just let me give you a couple ideas that go with that. These are just kind of random philisms, okay? So here's the first one. Ask questions to discern their level of knowledge. Pretty simple. When you're talking to someone who you perceive not to be religious or have any understanding, or maybe they grew up in a different form of religion than the Christianity that you're familiar with, ask questions so you know where they are. Just ask some questions. You said, well, what kind of questions should I ask? Here's a good one. Um, do you believe in God? I'm sure I believe in God. Like, what do you know about God? Or how about this one? If you were to die today and go to heaven, what would you say to God for him to let you into your kingdom? Automatically, that question is allowing you to discern, not to preach, but to understand, ooh, they don't know this, they don't know this. I gotta make sure I cover this. Here's a second one. Express yourself in, in the language um, 
Ask questions to discern the level of knowledge. You have to express yourself, as Milton Gregory says, in the language of the student. Now, I'm of an opinion here that as you get older, the younger generation creates new words so that you wouldn't know what they're talking about. Now, some, I'll just be honest, like, if you don't have teenage kids yet, get ready, all right? They're going to be talking in a language, and you're going to say, is that even English? Okay. And I, I think some of that's probably intentional. Hey, let's use this word so mom and dad won't know what we're talking about. Okay. Okay. But here's the picture. You have to find a way to speak in the language where they are. Now, I asked one of our uh, youth interns a few years ago to give me a list of words, and he gave me like 12 words, and I had no idea what they meant. And just let me push pause here and say something else really important. I don't think that a 61-year-old can be using all of those kinds of words with any degree of genuineness at all, okay? Which brings this point. That's why a mentor of mine once said, it is the responsibility of every generation to reach their generation for Christ. I'm not saying that a 60-plus-year-old can't preach the gospel But I'm saying we better understand that our 15 and 16-year-old kids understand the gospel because they're the ones who got to speak it to their generation. And if you don't do that, the church dies out, okay? So you got to use language that's common to both. Here's another one. Use the simplest and fewest words possible. That's right. Don't spend all your time talking. When you are attempting to share the gospel with someone, use understandable words. Use the simplest and fewest words possible to express meaning. Here's another one. If the student fails to understand you, repeat the thought with other words. If they're looking at you confused, like, what do you mean, who is Jesus? Then repeat the thought with other words. By the way, this this has even happened in Acts chapter 22, well, Acts chapter 9, when Paul is converted, he says, who are you, Lord? Jesus says, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. Whoa, whoa. Paul asks the question, and Jesus answers with very few words. Jesus doesn't say, sit down, Paul, let me give you three lessons on theology. He just answers. And here's the final one. Improve the meaning of the words through illustrations. Don't be afraid if you see they can't grasp the word to come up with a communication or a story to communicate. Here's the second idea. Four reminders as you share your story or the Jesus story. Speak with integrity. Don't whitewash your past. Speak with integrity. Don't whitewash your past. Notice how Paul begins to speak in Acts 22. This is what he said. I persecuted this way to death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those who were there and to bring them in bonds, that is to chain them, and to take them to Jerusalem to be punished. Paul says, here's my past. I persecuted Christians. In fact, later he'll say, I was even there at the death of Stephen, and I was the one cheering him, everybody on as they executed him. Wow, that's tough. Paul's not afraid to talk about his past. If you have something in your past that you say, well, well, well that, wasn't a, that wouldn't have been a good Christian if I let that cat out of the bag, so I just won't talk about it. Just understand that that is the very thing that God saved you from. You should talk about it, right? You should be able to say, listen, this was my past, but here is what God did. If any man be in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things are passed away. Behold, everything is new. I was there, but here is where I am presently. And, and just by way of a caveat, 
if you're a Christian that struggles in areas, don't be afraid to acknowledge you're a Christian that struggles in areas. Why is it that certain sins are, we just don't really want to confess as sins? So don't be afraid to say in your story, listen, um, I'm not whitewashing anything. This is who I was. Here's the third idea. Tell how you met Jesus. Don't be ashamed of your story. I love this. Tell how you met Jesus. If you're so concerned about getting every I dotted and every T crossed, you're probably going to mess it up. But if you just say, hey, listen, here's my story. Here's how I met Jesus. Here's where I was. Here's what I've done. Then one day I discovered that God forgave me through Jesus, and this is where I am, and this is where I'm going. Tell how you met Jesus. Don't be ashamed of your story. Now, bear in mind, here's Paul. He's still on top of the steps. He's still sharing. Okay. And uh, this is what he says, Acts 22. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus about noon, a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Paul says, I can't even look at the light. I fall to the ground, face down on the dirt, and I hear a voice in my head saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? Watch this. Paul asked two questions of God. And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Verse 10. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? This is great. Two questions. That's all it is. If you really understood that Jesus was Lord, that's the only other question you got to answer. Once you say, who are you, Lord? He says, I'm Jesus. I'm the one who created everything. Okay. Ooh, what do you want me to do? Okay. That's all that matters. Notice there is no debate on Paul's part here. Uh, Lord, what's a compromise look like? Can, can, can I be a little bit of a Christian without being a lot of a Christian? Okay. No, he just says, what shall I do? And I love that because in Paul's immediate response to the gospel, you say, well, that's pretty clear that you'd want to do that. If, Phil, if I was face down in the dirt, I was blind when I could just see, and all I hear is a voice talking to me, I'd be a little freaked out, and I'd probably say that too. Maybe we all need to have that experience with Jesus. Because the Lord said to me, rise up, go to Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. Wow. It's awesome. Paul doesn't wax eloquent. He just says, hey, listen, this experience happened to me. I heard the, I heard the Lord say, I, ha- I had a question, who are you? And he said, I am Jesus, and I only had one other question, what should I do? Now, notice what happens next in Acts 22, picking up the reading there at verse 13. And Ananias, that's the one who comes down there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour, I received my sight and I saw him. Now, look at verse 16. And Ananias said, and now why do you wait? Okay. <laughs> Come on, Paul, you got your sight back. Get busy. Okay. Wait, it just happened an hour ago. It doesn't matter. Right. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. There's four things that happen there, just worth noting. Rise. Now, remember, Jesus had already told him to rise when he was face down in the dirt. Now he's at this home in Damascus, and Ananias walks in. He's been blind for three days. And Ananias says, hey, you got your sight back? Great. Um, by the way, rise. Take action. That may be the first thing that every Christian should hear. You don't have to sit back. It's time to take action. There's people who need to hear the gospel. Get busy. Get doing it. Notice he says as well, and be baptized. I like to just add maybe regarding baptism here. Notice that Paul was a religious person before he was asked to be baptized. He'd been a religious person his entire life. 
And yet Ananias says to him, hey, you're a Christian, you need to be baptized. You trusted Christ, you need to be baptized. You say, why? There is in the act of baptism what I might call a humbling of yourself in public identification. A humbling of yourself in public identification. You're saying, I am a Christian. There is kind of a, as we practice baptism here, there is kind of even a serious trust element, right? I know that because I baptized people for a long time. And every time I baptize a person, I've never baptized a person with their eyes wide open, okay? They kind of lean back in your arms. You're taking them down. They got their eyes shut. They got this peaceful expression on their face that says, I know I'm going underwater, but I am confident Pastor Phil will get me up again, okay? There, there is this whole thing in that. There's, this, there's, this, there's actually almost this sense of surrender. Right? You may have heard me tell this story um, if you've been with us any period of time at all, but they never taught me how to baptize people in seminary, okay? There wasn't a baptism 101 class. They just sent us out here. I'm ordained. Nobody's told me how to baptize, so I'm at Fellowship Bible Church in my first year of pastoring. We're in a baptism, and... And I don't know what I'm doing, but I watched some YouTube videos or something. Okay. So I kind of got this idea that I'm supposed to get support their back and take them under, okay, and bring them back up. Okay. Except nobody told me that when you put a body in the water, it floats, all right? So we baptize by immersion here, which means they should come up wet. So I have this guy, I have him in the tank, I lean him back, he's got that peaceful expression on his face, he's smiling, his eyes are shut, and he's floating. And nobody can see that he's floating because they're out there, this is in another church, and, and I... I think, well, I got to baptize him by immersion, so I shove him under. (laughs) Yeah. Uh. (laughs) And to make matters worse, I had him too close to the end of the other tank, right? So, and these things are big fiberglass tanks. They're like big bass drums. So what everybody hears out there is boom, okay. And I'm looking up, I'm looking, and I can see the wife. She's sitting right about there, this man, as I'm bringing him out of the water. And I want to say, he's still alive, okay? He, he probably has a concussion, but he's good, okay? I mean, here's the point. Baptism is a humbling experience, even sometimes for the person doing the baptizing, right? The point is this, that that's part of the image. I'm humbly following the Lord. It's also a full-scale commitment kind of decision. I remember when I was serving, um, teaching in Ukraine, I talked to my friend Greg who pastored there and I said, hey, what do you guys do for baptisms? He said, we march them down to the river. I said, wow, that's pretty cool. He said, yeah, they put on a white robe and uh, they march right through the center of town. I said, where did that come from? He said, from the communist era. Because they wanted to say, I'm taking a stand for Christ even though you're going to send me to Siberia when it's over. What? Like, we can be a little fearful of being in front of people. What if you were informed that you were going to have to head to Siberia as soon as your baptism was over? This is the image I want you to see, that that this is what Paul says. Listen, I'm not going to argue with you that I'm the Apostle Paul. Like, why do I need to be baptized? you have any idea how long I sat in Jewish schools? He doesn't say any of that. He just says, sure. 
And I love this phrase, wash away your sins. It's, it's not tied to the baptism, but it's kind of the image. Um, we don't wash away your sins when you're baptized. You wash away your sins when you call upon his name. That's the second part, the last part of that phrase. But here's what I want you to see. There is something um, kind of purifying about that image because you publicly identified with Christ. You may have made a private commitment, but you publicly identified with him and you said to everybody out there, I believe that Jesus is my savior and I believe he's washed away my sins. In fact, when I was baptized um, as a young child, uh, I remember that um, the way it was described, I was probably seven years old, and then the baptismal tank was up in the wall someplace, so here I am as a little boy up there, and I had a really bad fever that day, and you know, this was back decades and decades ago, so we didn't care. If you brought your flu into the church, who cared? Okay, so that's exactly what happened, right? I wanted to be baptized, and the pastor wasn't afraid to baptize me. And this is what he said. He says, as he has little Philip right there, okay, he says, wow, if you could feel this young man, he is burning up with a fever, okay? And I remember that my dad said to me afterwards something like, how do you feel, right? I remember my dad asking me this question because we went to the boiler room back then because that was the only room I could get warm in after I was baptized. So we go to the boiler room, we're sitting down there, and my dad says, how do you feel? Like, and, and again, I had already placed my faith in Christ as my dad had shared the gospel with me, but I remember thinking, like, wow, I have just publicly told everybody in my church, hundreds of people, that I'm a follower of Jesus. That's what you're doing. Washing away your sins, this is so cool. I just want you to just imagine what Paul is thinking. He's standing on the steps. He's looking at all these Jewish people. He knows that in his past, he had sought to execute people for their faith in Jesus. Okay. He had persecuted, Jesus said, why are you persecuting me, Paul? Like he knew that he, by, execute, by seeking those executions, he had persecuted Jesus, his Savior. Can you imagine the guilt and grief with that? Like, I don't know what you got in your past, but Paul had stuff in his past. And here's what he does. He knows in that moment that all those things are washed away. Why would you not come to Jesus? Okay, like, this is unbelievable. Do you tell your story that way? Do you look at the person who's struggling with grief and regret and pain and say, hey, I got a way that you can be forgiven for all of that. And here it is, calling on his name. That's it calling on the name of Jesus. So you see four things. Rise, take action, be baptized, humble yourself, wash away your sins, be forgiven, and just call on Jesus' name. And that's what the Apostle Paul does. There's one final one here. Exercise courage. Don't avoid the controversial parts. Use understandable words, speak with integrity, tell how you met Jesus. Okay, three things, that's it. But exercise courage. Paul gives this entire message on the steps. Bear in mind, he's talking to Jewish people who just said this man is doing something everywhere in every place. He is preaching that what we're doing is wrong. Okay, that's, that's his crowd, okay? The one thing he should not say in that setting is, uh, listen, I'm a Jew, but I preach to Gentiles. Right? That's the one thing he should not say. Because they're a bunch, he's doing it to a bunch of, he's saying it to a bunch of Jews. So they're upset that the Gentiles are, are being injected. And, and they, they, there's no question that's the one thing he shouldn't say. 
So watch this, Acts 22, verse 17. He's still up there on the steps. He's still talking. He's talked about how he became a Christian. And then he says, when I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, he said, I was here before. This is when it happened, like right here, right here. I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, that is Jesus, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. They're going to believe me because I was the one who was against them. And then he goes on to say, and when the blood of Stephen, your witness was being shed, Paul's having a conversation with Jesus in the temple, okay? I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, okay, you ready? Here's Paul's words to hundreds of Jewish people who just tried to kill him. Jesus said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. That is the one thing, Paul, you do not want to say. And up to this word, they listened to him, and then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Wow. And there's where it stops. And Lysias says, why did I ever let you talk to anybody? <laughs> okay, Because the whole riot has started again off of one simple statement. Paul would say, hey, listen, I just want to say, this may be the most controversial part, but I want to share the whole counsel of God. I don't want to step away from this only thing. Now note this as well. For those of you who might be prone to say, listen, I know what the situation is. I'm just going to step in and give the truth in seven simple, simple statements I'm going to give. That's, that's not what Paul does with this. Paul spends the entire time talking about his relationship with Jesus before he ever fingers the one thing that they're upset about. Go for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And this will be the problem throughout the rest of his imprisoned ministry. Okay? We'll have to come back next week to find out how that part of the story ends. Here it is again. To make an eternal impact, start with proper expectations and share your Jesus story. That's it. Because if you're in God's story, what you do has eternal consequences. Father, it's been a privilege to look to your word this morning. And we are grateful. And Lord, I'm just constrained here even at the end to just pause and, and remember that as we've talked about how Paul shared this story, we probably should be asking the question at this stage of someone who may be here who's never heard the story. With your heads bowed, I'm just going to shift from prayer and just talk to you. You say, wow, that Jesus stuff, Phil, I never knew that. Let me explain it to you simply. We are sinners. That is, we have a broken relationship with God. We've done things that are wrong. If you're here, I'm not going to try to convince you that. You probably know that already. We couldn't get to God, and so Jesus came. The Bible says he was tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin. So because he didn't sin, when he died on the cross, his death could pay the penalty for your sin and mine. And then he simply says this, we only have to believe in him. We say, I know I'm a sinner, I know I need a savior, and I believe Jesus was my savior. The simplest verse in the Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. It's all through Jesus, not through anything you've done. So if you're here this morning and you've never 
believe that. I would invite you to do that this morning. Right where you are, you can pray. Call out to God. Say, dear Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner. I know I need a savior. I believe you died on the cross. You were buried and you rose again so I could be washed of all of my sins. I believe in you. Save me. Let's take a moment and thank him for that. For the rest of us, I just want to ask you a question. How are you doing in sharing your Jesus story? Are you looking around? Are you attentive to those who are around you? When there's hate, when there's chaos, are you looking at those for opportunities not to answer, but just to get to the platform to share Jesus. I encourage you to leave today looking through a different set of eyes at all of those around you. Father, we're humbled, we're grateful, and we are thankful that Jesus saves us. He alone is worthy. In his name we pray, amen.